0: This podcast is about William Inge, an American playwright who lived from 1913 to 1973. My point in looking at the plays and the thought of William Inge is not to glorify another um, relatively little known author today, but to learn about the church and about the pros and the cons of something like real Christianity from this very perceptive, very unhappy, and extremely uh, diagnostic and gentle uh, depictor of uh, families. Now, I got into William Inge initially because my friend Lloyd Fonville spoke on one of his posts on the Mardi Cortez Baja website about the 1960 film directed by Ilya Kazan, Splendor in the Grass. And this movie, which is so excellent and so affecting, and so for my money perfectly done, was the brainchild of William Inge, an American playwright originally from Kansas. And it is uh, William Inge's screenplay and concept for Splendor in the Grass that touched Lloyd and touched me in particular because Inge wanted so very much to have a cameo role in Splendor in the Grass, the role being that of the minister, Mr. Whitman, who is so presented in the play, uh, the movie, which I'll talk about towards the end, as an Episcopal clergyman. First, conducting morning prayer and giving a sermon that is kind of a um, uh, gloss on the uh, greed of the pre-bust citizens of the small town where Splendor takes place. But secondly, a most remarkable and touching pastoral encounter that Inge, as Reverend Whitman, has with the young Natalie Wood in the church and more on that later. So my interest was pricked that this um, playwright who is today often most uh, characteristically known as a closeted homosexual who committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in his uh, Mercedes in 1973 in California, uh, that uh, I realized immediately that there was a little more than I was accustomed to hearing about this playwright William Inge. Then I uh, happened to get a hold of his 1964 preface to four plays, his great four plays, Come Back, Little Sheba, Picnic, Bus Stop, and The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And in the preface from 64, Inge draws particular attention to the Christian Uh, notion that underlay his uh, idea in writing The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, in which he wrote that he was drawing a little, he felt, on Christian theology, in which a stunning and overwhelming death has uh, the power to unite in suffering a community of otherwise disunited and unreconciled people. Now, that caught my eye. So at that point, I decided to read as much of the work of William Inge as I could, and I'm well through it. I've uh, read most of his plays, a number of his shorter works, one of his novels, and um, uh, every other piece that I can get a hold of. So what I find in Inge that is really on my heart, especially for Christians, is his very gentle... And a non malicious picture of the role that the Christian church ought to have but doesn't have in the painful, chronic, and in some times uh, crisis tragedies of his main loved small town American characters and what i really want to talk about this after i sort of get the text out of the way you might say and orient you to him i want you to think a little bit about whether uh, how the church christianity which is after all the religion of forgiveness could have a more direct impact on the lives of people rather than being sort of a constantly potential resource which never quite Rarely, that is, fills its, its huge potential as a gift concerning mercy to troubled, suffering, and sinning people. And this difference between what it ought to be and what it actually is, is rather lovingly and touchingly and sympathetic. And in the last analysis, um, very uh, urgently stated in the work of William Inge. Well, just to give you a lay of the land, as I said, 1913 to 1973. Grew up in a small town in Kansas where he's currently loved and known. Spent most of his, uh, he taught at Stevens College near Columbia, Missouri. Uh, taught in high schools in the Middle West in that area. And uh, um, uh, finally, uh, ended up as the movie um, critic and theater critic for the uh, newspaper in St. Louis, where he met Tennessee Williams, who uh, loved him and cared for him and encouraged Inge to... um, uh, write some plays, and uh, Inge was very touched by this encouragement, as we all are. He was one of these fellows who doesn't have a thick skin. He wasn't a fighter like my other recent uh, protégé, uh, my other recent mentor Philip Wiley was, who was just a constant fighter and just spoiled for a fight. This is a man more after my heart who was easily discouraged, and when Tennessee Williams encouraged him so warmly and so persuasively, Um, Inge took it as that and wrote a play that was his breakthrough play called Come Back Little Sheba, which was later made into a spectacular movie with Shirley Booth and Burt Lancaster, and later on in a BBC or a Granada television production in England starring Lawrence Olivier and Joanne Woodward. Lawrence Olivier doesn't quite work, but the play itself, which is a, a very uh, beautiful play about hopeless characters and the positive influence of Alcoholics Anonymous, reflects Inge's own uh, alcoholic uh, history, which was broken by periods of use again, but in 1948 he became a member of AA and he writes about AA with great uh, conviction and great uh, gratitude, and not always it didn't always stick as we know. Now he then wrote a play called *Picnic*, which was later made into a hugely successful movie with William Holden and Kim Novak and others, and Rosalind Russell. And it's a play about a about a, a kind of a, a matriarchy of sort of women running houses where there aren't many strong men, and all of a sudden a kind of very macho uh, Jack Kerouac-like drifter comes into their midst and changes everyone's life forever and it's sort of how the, the sort of raw uh, male power of this, uh, uh, this uh, bull in a china shop changes all these women's lives forever and sort of uh, uh, illumines their sexual especially their sexual but sublimated longings because he never steps out of character for his people. They're always people who live in small midwestern towns during the depression, almost always that but like all human beings they're driven by unconscious forces that they understand, and these always come out. And then he wrote a great play called Bus Stop about a group of Westerners uh, sort of caught in a storm at a diner uh, in uh, Idaho somewhere, <clears throat> and it starred Marilyn Monroe in the movies and won uh, Don Murray an Oscar. And uh, uh, the movie isn't that great, although the last 20 minutes are very, very fine and very moving about uh, uh, all his plays usually have male-female relationships that are sort of running on empty until a crisis happens, Usually it's a, it's a rather out-of-control young male who sort of uh, is full of uh, sexual uh, power but is also vulnerable and, and, and human. And uh, in Bus Stop, the same thing happens and a number of people find a kind of credible, hopeful, first step or small victory of love in uh, the uh, very touching resolution of Bus Stop. And finally, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, which was also made into a successful movie, about a... a, 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 a 38-year-old sort of couple who have an overly attached son to the mother and a sort of awkward daughter who's just in puberty and doesn't quite know who she is. And the father's away all the time because the mother is really way more attached to the son than she is to her husband. And the play is about a terrible tragedy, as in said, talking about Christian theology, a major um, a tragedy that comes into their lives by which the wife, Cora Flood, has to come to terms with sex, which she has really closed her eyes to its importance and has lost her husband. And In, in this tragedy, she finds out what's important. And she and her husband are very Incredibly and beautifully and touchingly but without fanfare, very realistically reconciled in that way at the end of the play, and the son is able to break away from his mom, and this obviously reflects all sorts of things in Inge's life and so forth. Well, he went on and did many other plays, some of which were failures, and he finally died of, of depression coupled with alcoholism which led to suicide. And he wrote a, what he thought was his best play, which I'll return to, called A Loss of Roses, about the same kind of characters in the Depression. And this uh, uh, play was not a success at all and depressed him in 1960. And then in 1971, he kind of wrote a kind of a digest of his whole life in fictional form, which brings in almost all the characters of his plays in type, the various kinds of matriarchal women, the confused women, the young women, the hookers, the the, the nice hookers, the the, the terrible men, the wrong man, the confused man, the needy man, the dear man, the Christian man. And My Son is a splendid Driver. I can't recommend that to you highly enough from 1971. And as I said before, he became successful in Hollywood because of his, uh, his plays that were bought. And then finally he wrote Splendor in the Grass, which in 1960 was one of the great Hollywood movies. And you have to see it. You simply must get it. Now that's the story of William Inge. It's a sad story. And as I say today, it's a bit of a cottage industry on Inge's homosexuality, which he always kept under the wraps. There's not a single um, actual uh, formal reference to it, in all his correspondence and all the works he left behind. He was one of the first uh, Broadway playwrights, or New York playwrights, or American playwrights, to have explicitly uh, gay characters. Particularly, I think it's called, what is it called? I've got it right here, The Boy in the Basement. Um, and uh, he has uh, uh, he deals with homosexuality, but as I say, and it's there, and I'm certain that he was. Um, but it's not um, he, he he would not have wanted to have it feted for whatever reasons, cultural, personal. Uh, he also uh, the play is also is called um, the Boy in the Basement, but uh, he was also very involved um, romantically with a woman, the actress Barbara Baxley, and he he indicates that he had sexual relations on several occasions with women in his life. He was obviously what today would be. Called Called, I guess bisexual with apparently the tilt towards the outsider gay persona, but i'm I'm not uh, able to focus on that, and even the biographies that try very hard have to always come up against a kind of a kind of vide manque in the uh, in the sources so we're in, um, we're walking uh, on the moon uh, there, but we're not walking on the moon in relationship to Inge's um, characteristic belief that uh, people need saving. Now this is what I want to talk about, and I want to talk about Inge's uh, understanding of, uh, of 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 church. Now, in 1960, we have. Uh kind of ineffectual minister in Splendor in the Grass, who only has two very short scenes played by Inge at his request. And Reverend Whitman, by the way, he's a properly attired Episcopalian clergyman. I say that. He's probably Methodist in the original conception, but he was dressed with cassock and surplice and tippet and academic hood, and he's clearly conducting morning prayer in this church service in which all the main characters and a few others are present. It's not a very convincing church service, but in the course of it, in his homily, and this is Inge's true voice, because Inge felt that America was very greedy and that it was as greedy in the 60s as it had been before 1929 and that America's great um, wound and scar was its materialism and so he, uh, Reverend Whitman kind of lectures his people through Inge himself as the actor and it's very clear that he means it when he says to the audience of these very rather upwardly mobile, making a lot of money through oil suddenly discovered oil and uh, wildcatting oil strikes he um he says to them as a sermon, Lay up for yourselves treasures not on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves rather treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. And then he says, Amen, and sits down. That is his sermon to these heedless, greedy people, all of whom are caught short and lose their shirts and their souls. Prior and then at the beginning of the crash of 1929 in Dust Bowl Oklahoma. Now um, he later on, uh, when uh, Natalie Wood is um, uh, terribly upset in the church, praying for Warren Beatty who's sick, and she's praying, and Reverend Whitman comes in and, and uh, asks her, "How can I help you?" He's dear, ineffectual, you might say, but dear. And she says, "Well, I, I'm, I'm. How should I pray? I'm. I, I just want to be well." But shouldn't I? Aren't there some prayers in the Bible I could use that would really be better? And he says, the minister says, no, I think no prayer in the Bible could do better than the one you're praying, i.e. Lord, make him well. And at that point, Ilya Kazan has set up the camera so that you look into Inge's face with his clerical garb. Again, he's an Episcopalian because he's wearing a beautiful black suit and a that He just looks exactly right. I met so many clergy in the old days like him, and he's looking down at her with such pathos and, and sweetness and uh, genuine care. And then he leaves her. She continues to pray, and you see him walk out. And then he stands in the sort of narthex of the church, looking back, slightly lit, with a look of of deep sympathy for Natalie Wood, who in many ways is the hero, as you know, of Splendor in the Grass, the very sad and unfulfilled, and finally, uh, you might say, a hopeful heroine at the end of Splendor. And that is very revealing. That shows that while the minister isn't able to directly connect, he's where she goes when she needs help. And he also has, he's in touch with the tradition, which says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, in... uh, In um, A Loss of Roses, no, my son is a splendid driver. We have uh, a very... Um, memorable picture of uh, the inability of the church, as it was so experienced by Inge, who grew up, by the way, as an every Sunday Presbyterian, as a little boy with devout mother. Uh, we see in um, my son is a splendid driver from 1971, a delineation, a very sad and rueful delineation of a uh, of a, of a, uh, uh, of the church. There, but not able to be what it could be and therefore falling down at the job. And on page 152, we've just found out that um, that the hero's mother has caught in her early 60s a social disease, STD, from her traveling salesman husband, who's also in his 60s. They've both been married for over 40 years. And the wife at age 62, who's about the most prim church lady you've ever seen in your life, has caught this disease from her husband, who caught it from someone with whom he was unfaithful on the road. He's a traveling salesman, and it's the Depression. And here's how Inge describes this poor woman's shame and her situation. This is page 152 of My Son is a Splendid Driver. Every morning on the front porch, we would see Mrs. Holt leave her house and start for the Catholic Church on her way to Mass. She doesn't miss a day, mother observed. There was a dedication about the woman that always gave us pause. I wish I had a God to pray to now, mother sometimes said, but I don't seem able to find him. Mother had stopped going to church. Quote, church isn't the place to go with your troubles. Church is just a place to go when you're feeling good and have a new hat to wear. "'There was a little bitterness in what she said, a little self-pity, but there was also truth. "'Our minister would have been the last person in the world she could have talked to, "'to have lifted the curse she felt upon her and saved her from feeling damned. "'She would have embarrassed the man into speechlessness had she gone to him with her story. "'He would have been unable to look at her or my father without coloring most of our morality i was beginning to think was based on a refusal to recognize sin our entire religious heritage it seemed to me was one of refusal to deal with it well um my son is a splendid driver we see the inability of the church to deal with its own sinners that's the one, number one problem in the christian church and it probably always has been the inability of the church to deal with sinners. Now, listen to later on on page 213 when the lead character, whose name is Joey, runs into an old sort of girlfriend of his who was kind of a hot ticket on the college campus and never really gave him another look. But um, uh, he admired her and worshipped her. And then she came into a terrible difficulty. And he finds her about 10 years after they were in college or eight years in a, in a bookstore in St. Louis. And there she is. Um, and they're talking. She's just told him that she's become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on page 213, she says, You know something, Joey? We never learn what life is all about until we fail. I asked her to explain. Well, it's as though I had wanted all the time to become an actress, just to have my own way about something. And I really don't know what the something was. But I was ambitious in the wrong way. It's almost as though I wanted to be a brilliant success in the theater in order to have vengeance on someone. I don't know who. Maybe the world. So I missed. I know I had talent, but I was using it the wrong way. It was I who messed up my chances. I alone. I had to give up my conception of what my life was going to be. Do you see? My will had to be overcome. I had to learn that there's a stronger will that works behind the entire universe that sometimes stops us in our headstrong way. And then you have to surrender to a real life, Joey, the life that's really yours, and make the very best you can out of the life that you have to lead. Am I being too metaphysical? I think I understand something of what you mean, Betsy. I think I do. After lunch, we parted. All the rest of the day, I thought of Betsy feeling somehow I had witnessed one of Christ's miracles. Now, the character is not fully able to follow her in this, and he's one of these outsiders that you see in so many works of literature, and many of us feel that way. There's so many people in the world who basically everybody feels this way, if you want to know the truth, by their very existence. They feel they're kind of an outsider. So even if they're confronted with someone who really has something to say out of brokenness and deep need and deep humility and humbledness, who is Betsy in that encounter, he always feels that he can't quite go there, even though his greatest moments are in AA. And if you see Come Back Little Sheba, you will see as clinically direct and admiring and also unsentimental a view of an AA intervention as there exists. I've never seen as thrilling, as upsetting, and as true, and as finally wondrous a depiction of an AA intervention as exists in, I believe it's the, the... uh, last or last but one seen and act of uh, Come Back Little Sheba. Now, it's interesting that my son is a splendid driver, which is two years before he committed suicide. He uh, writes at the start. You can always learn something about a writer by the ascription. And he dedicates, dedicates the book to his mother, and it's about his mother, negatively, so that implies something, although he insists it's fictional. But then the ascription or the opening page, he has a quote, and this is the quote. Quote, woe to those who do not know their own misery and woe to those who love this wretched and corruptible life. Thomas A. Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. And later on at the end of the uh, book, he uh quotes The Imitation of Christ again. And he was very attracted at the end of his life, partly through his sister who cared very much for him, who'd become a Catholic. He was very attracted to uh, Roman Catholicism. It was sort of the only thing going that was Christian. He was very open to it at the end of his life. But he quotes there in that final book from Thomas Akempis. Now, I want to conclude... By um, reading a section that really says everything that I would try to say about Inge, Inge is a man who knows that the church is ultimately where you could go. But he also knows that when you get there, you don't hear a message of forgiveness. Uh, he His characters are constantly saying, you know, I'm just not good enough to go to church. Or I'll have to wait till I get my life together before I go to church. Or I went to church once, but then when I had problems, I couldn't imagine going back. Only good people who... who Feel good about themselves can go to church. Now you and I know that that's a misconception. And it's a very deep-seated misconception. But Inge himself <clears throat> gave voice to that misconception constantly, where he or that conception, because he constantly sees uh, the Christian church as as not able to deliver what it promises by way of absolution and forgiveness, or at least it it has the hope. It it is a place where someone could go, but usually when you get there, it's not talking about. It's not scratching where it itches. And I would have to say that's my experience. Most people, when they get to church, and that includes me, especially when they're in great need and trouble, find uh, that they're having it's stewardship Sunday or it's youth group Sunday or it's uh, something um, some some completely secondary activity that has absolutely nothing to do with the, the heart of human suffering because people who go to church whether they're in it or not are basically going for, for help and consolation and comfort and aid and endurance and peace and forgiveness and usually when you go to church even if you do hear a regular service and they haven't mucked it up the sermon basically is saying you guys got to get it together if only you do this that and that then and you'll be all right, and certainly if you've been a Christian before, you're sort of you're sort of uh, pushed right out the door through a through a kind of inability to 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 measure up, to to get it together. You you wouldn't be there if you weren't basically splat on the floor. And there are often, even in the best circle, sometimes, there's a real sympathy for someone who's who's not a Christian, who's in trouble. There can be a great welcome, like at the Salvation Army, for someone who's destroyed their life and whose life is a complete wreckage. But when you actually get in the structure, someone once told me of a famous Christian organization, that it was great if you weren't in it. But once you got in it, the closer you got to the center the less and less forgiveness there was. And when you actually got to the Board, and uh, this is a parachurch organization. When you actually got into the, the the heart of the of the organization, there was absolutely no concept or experience of forgiveness about anything whatsoever, and people just walked about with incredible anxiety. Now. In uh, A Loss of Roses, um, four characters' lives are coming undone. A, uh, a a woman who has a past and a very predatory former boyfriend, a um, a nice guy who's also a boyfriend of hers but who is uh, very um, out for himself and selfish and hopelessly tied up with his overly involved mother. And it's a classic uh, for- a foursome of a mother and a son and a girlfriend and a jerk a girl and a jerk but they're all deeply troubled and uh, the point counterpoint of the uh, second but one scene of the play is there's a religious revival going on nearby sort of under a tent or in a church building or like in a roller rink I think it actually is where they've taken it over to have a kind of revival and this is the depression in Kansas in a small Kansas town or a medium sized Kansas town and you hear the um, the words of the evangelist as these people's lives are coming unraveled inside but unlike a lot of places, like that, where you, you know, like Elmer Gantry, where you'd be, you'd be attacking the evangelist for saying platitudes and things that mean nothing, while the reality, the horrible reality of suicide, murder, and rejection and uh, um, incest that is going on inside the house is, is completely at odds. That's not the case with Inge. Here, the voice of the evangelist off stage is meant to be saying something very important and something very true. The only problem is there's no actual existential connection between the voice of the evangelist sort of being piped out over the roller rink megaphone and the people whose lives are becoming unraveled psychosexually and relationally inside the house. And I want to read the speech that the evangelist makes. At first, he talks about um, the voice of the evangelist welcoming everybody and um, uh, and then he goes on, and meanwhile, in the house, terrible things are happening. Not violent things, but sad revelations. And uh, you see what you think. Voice of the Evangelist. As I was on my way to your town, traveling by bus over the once great farmlands of our country, I saw the tragic faces of our farmers who have been battling the depression and the drought. Oh, by the way, Inge was terribly interested in the... the, the uh, The loss of nerve in American materialism that the Depression had basically brought, he felt that that was a salutary and healthy thing for our country. And so he says at the introduction in 1960 to the play, even though I'm writing in 1960, I'm setting it in the Depression because deep down we're all in a deep depression (laughs) in our hearts. Here goes the evangelist. I saw the tragic faces of our farmers who have been battling the Depression and the drought with haunted faces they would turn to me and say my land is ruined my soil is destroyed things will no longer grow my cattle are starving and dying of thirst and they drop to the ground in the parching sun and i can do nothing to save them what am i to do how am i to live then something happens off in on stage and then there is that other kind of depression friends the depression of the heart the drought of the soul the deflation of the spirit And this is the worst depression of all, for the heart closes its doors like a bank vault when people are afraid to give of their love. And there is a sorrow all over the land when there is not enough love to go around. And hopeless faces look at you pleadingly and cry out in despair, How am I to live? How am I to live? Yes, that is the question all of us are asking ourselves today, friends. What am I to do? How am I to live? A pause. Let us pray. And at this point, the poor, beset, sexy, but deeply abused heroine comes in with her abusing an awful boyfriend whom she could have avoided. And uh, that will not have a happy ending. But what Inge is giving us here is a real statement of the power of the church to ask the right questions. The only trouble, it's not giving if I may say it, an answer which connects. This is one of his last works of uh, a failure, it was, 24 or 28 performances on Broadway as opposed to 450 with all his other plays. And here is the evangelist asking the great question, what am I to do? How am I to live? How can I love? My heart is like a bank vault that's closed to and from love. And yet the people on the stage are in terrible bondage of the profoundest actings out and losses and ultimately uh, depredation and of their whole lives. Now, my point is that Inge's point is a very good one. He doesn't attack the church, you know, like you might find in the Book of Mormon, that musical I saw recently in New York, which when all is said and done, despite all the non-religious critics who gave it such a... I, I, the people who love Book of Mormon obviously weren't church goers because um, the Book of Mormon, although it has many strengths and is very clever and is very funny and has a lot of the South Park touches and it, it's even-handed in its humor and says a lot of things that are simply true about evangelical Christianity because the Mormonism is just really a, a front for uh, the, the, the depiction of evangelical Christianity, which is given, uh, which is very accurate in many ways, but the play is essentially anti-religious. It, it, uh, uh, I, I would defy anyone who's religious, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, liberal, um, 815 Second Avenue or ACNA, you uh, or Muslim, or Buddhist even for that matter. There's a definite kind of a spirit of anger at religion and God, but mainly at religion, that maybe reflects some very true insights but it's pretty hot and if you're a religious person even if you're in recovery you'll find yourself a little bit uncomfortable with the anger that underlies the anger at religion as opposed to the potentially clever and even sympathetic observations. Now Inge is not angry here and he is not shocked and he is not out to get religion or Christianity. He sees it as something that asks the great questions. He sees it as something that sees the world a.k.a. uh, Thomas Kemp He is able to understand uh, that um, the church could be a place for, quote, sinners and needy sufferers like his mother so acutely in her 62nd year, having caught a venereal disease from her no account good husband whom she has to stay at. Um, There's a tremendous year. We see it in Reverend Whitman, who's a good man, a sweet man, but he doesn't really have much to say her Majesty is a very fun kid, but she doesn't... Very very nice. What is it from Abbey Road? Her Majesty's a very nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Boom, 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 boom. John Lennon, you know, there we are. What? Um, basically, he sees the church as a good thing, as ultimately potentially a kind thing, as a place where questions are asked that most people in their lives aren't asking. But he basically sees it as pharisaical, judgmental, and not able to communicate the very heart of it, which is forgiveness. Now, I hope you go on the Mockingbird site www.mbird.com, the blog, and look down to about May the twenty. 9th or 30th for the video of Fran Leibovitz's uh, HBO special in which she talks about Christianity. Fran Leibovitz who uh, claims to be a believer in revenge because she's Jewish and she, uh, she talks about her Judaism in very blue, very funny and uh, very delightful ways. And um, This is not a Christian speaking. She's very clear about it, but she says, you know, I could never be a Christian because I don't believe in forgiveness. She says, I believe in revenge. Get it, you know, the old dish served cold. She says, uh, uh, Jesus came along and he said, uh, no, 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 not revenge. Forgive, forgive. And, and then Fran says, well, no wonder it's a bigger religion. Everybody said, forgive, we want that. But but I believe in revenge. And then she talks about the New Testament and you can say anything you want. But what she says, and she can say it in a way that I cannot say it, because if I say it, someone will say that it's Marcionite or it's uh, one-sided or it's not this or it's not that. And um, let her say it. She says, Christianity is about forgiveness. Now, is there anyone listening to this broadcast who would not agree with that? I mean, is there anyone here who objectively would disagree? You might say, well, Christianity is about other things as well. Don't be blinkered. Don't reduce it to one thing. It's about forgiveness, but it's also about this, that, or the other thing. Well, that's fine, but will you object to her core point that Christianity is about forgiveness? And in the case of these poor cross-bearing, burdened, sinning and sinned against women and men in Comeback Little Sheba and in Picnic and in Bus Stop. Preachers come into it and out of it all the time, religious language, the dark at the top of the stairs which he talked about as a Christian insight about suffering and unifying and reconciling people at odds through a great suffering that comes upon them. My son is a splendid driver, a loss of roses and splendor in the grass. Will you simply say that what he is saying is that the church could be a place of forgiveness? One of Christ's miracles, he says, referring to Betsy, whose life was destroyed by her drinking and has now found a real life that is not her own. She's serving, she's living, she's loving. And uh, this is exactly what could be, but it isn't although the church is there, benignly, to at least ask questions. Well, look, people, we need to get this thing together. We need to get this straight. Uh, Inge is right. Inge has a lot to say. We could be something, but apparently we're not being it. And read the plays and the novels of William Inge for a critical but ultimately sympathetic and deeply longing view of the heart of Christianity and what the church and the Christian community could be if it could just finally get off this extraordinarily compulsive need to constantly take away with the left hand what it has given so beautifully and graciously and unconditionally with the right. Read the works of William Inge. The four plays are available in Barnes and Noble, any Barnes and Noble in the country, and the others you can get on Amazon. And, uh, I believe you will be both wistful and hopeful at his view of the church. Thank you very much, and God bless.